Welcome to Move Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Clapson. The aim of this podcast is to explore, learn, and spread the message of rewilding and natural movement so that we as humans can live in more alignment with our nature and reclaim what it means to be fully alive. The modern world has stripped away so much that used to nourish our mind, body, and soul. This podcast will help illuminate how we can reclaim and restore our innate, wild, capable, and strong spirit. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hey, hey, and welcome back to another episode of Move Wild Podcast. I hope you have all had an amazing weekend and are ready to jump back in to this episode. So today I'm sharing an interview and a conversation that I had with Bill Von Hippel. So Bill is a professor and prior head of the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland. He conducts research in evolutionary psychology and is a fellow of numerous academic societies. He has published over a hundred articles and chapters and his work has been widely reported in the media including the New York Times, The Economist, USA Today, Le Monde, Il Mundo, Der Spiegel and The Australian. Bill recently published his first book, The Social Leap, which received the 2019 Book Award from the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. This was an awesome conversation. We talked all things human evolution, different stages of our evolution that led to different, I guess, behavior patterns and different psychological changes. And we talked about cooperation and how hunting has shaped human cooperation, all these different cool interesting things that I'm sure you guys are going to love. So let's jump into this episode and catch me after the show for how you can connect with me. That is recording. So thank you, Bill Von Hippel, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Sure, my pleasure. Yeah, so to start with, um, I'd like to get a little bit of your backstory and how you got into the work you do today and what it is exactly that you do today. Sure. So. Um, I'm a social psychologist, which means I'm interested in the basics of everyday human interaction, how, how we fall in love, how we persuade each other, the kind of stereotypes we have, all the regular everyday stuff. And um, I spent about, I've spent about the last 30 years doing that. But after about 20 years of doing that, I started to wonder, well, why does this make us happy? And why do we tend to do that? And social psychology does a great job of explaining what we do and even explaining some of our underlying motivations. So part of the why question, but it doesn't address the fundamental why question at all, which is, well, why does that make us happy? You know, we may do X because X makes us happy, but, but why does that happen? And so I realized that I needed a more functional approach to understand the way people interact today, our social functioning, et cetera. And um, evolution obviously provides that. And so if once you have a better sense of where we came from, you can see, well, here are the factors that actually facilitated our reproduction survival. Here are the factors that inhibited them. And so our emotional system will be organized around that. And so that's basically why I ended up doing this deep dive into uh, the last six or seven million years of our evolutionary history to try to get a better understanding of how we are today. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd love to dive into that whole conversation of evolution because I think it's really important to be informed from an evolutionary perspective so that we can live better lives in the modern world and really start to understand that evolution. So if we could kind of, uh, to start with, from a broad perspective, if you could run through kind of the timeline of human evolution, what were some of the major factors and points in that evolution that made us human? Sure. So 
Um, the basic story begins six or seven million, million years ago. We don't know exactly, and different data give us a slightly different answer. But the, the basic story is, we'll call it six million years ago, the um, Great African Rift Valley had been um, opening up over the last, at that point, 20, 25 million years. And what had happened was starting up uh, at the Red Sea and then slowly working its way down through Africa, through East Africa, down to the coast of Mozambique, um, the continent of Africa is literally tearing into two pieces. The tectonic plates are moving apart. The ones containing Somali, Ethiopia, et cetera, are moving to the right. The rest of Africa is moving to the left. And that's creating this great African Rift Valley, which will eventually, over time, be two continents. But for now, it's just this area of uh, lots of volcanic activity and lots of earthquakes and such. And then what's also happened simultaneously is that the east side of the Rift Valley has been elevating, has been rising up um, to often as high as about a mile in the air. Now that's been going on for 30 million years now, but by six million years ago, basically what had happened is that increasing elevation on the east side of the Rift Valley had essentially dried out almost all the rainforest that still existed at that point in time on the east side. So prior to that, the whole area was rainforest. As that progressed, rainforest more and more disappeared and was replaced by savanna. Now, this ends up being super important because our ancestors basically appear to have been essentially just like today's chimps, probably a little bit different because, of course, they've changed for the last six million years, too. But from all we can tell, they're awfully chimp-like. And if we look at chimps, we can see that they live this great life when they're up in the canopy. They're literally the top predator up there. Nobody can take them on when they're in a group in the trees uh, because they're so strong, so fast, and so athletic. So even leopards, which are sub supreme tree climbers, won't try to approach them when they're in the trees. But when they're on the ground, they're easy prey. They, they're not very fast. They're pretty small compared to the big cats. And so as the rainforest started to disappear by virtue of the sort of local climate change, the drying out on the east side of the Rift Valley, our chimpish ancestors were forced more and more to be, go out on the ground until by six million years ago, that was essentially they had no choice anymore. And at that point, from all we can tell, you know, here they are, this animal that's really well adapted to living in the trees, that's where its food comes from, that's how it avoids predators, is suddenly thrust out on the ground where it has to find new sources of food and where suddenly it's prey to all sorts of animals that were irrelevant to its life before. Saber-toothed cats, which existed at that time, lions, leopards, animals that were irrelevant to them are suddenly an enormous problem. And so they, they face this kind of evolutionary pressure cooker, which it's kind of remarkable that they even survived and came out the other end, but they did and the process by which they did um, that is what leads to us. Yeah, interesting. So what are some early kind of changes that we see in those like early human ancestors or chimp-like ancestors as they start to move out of those forest environments and be more exposed to savanna-like environments? So the, the first thing that we, we can't see now directly in the fossil record, but we can look at modern chimps is to try to find behavioral changes that might have engaged in. And there's one example of modern chimps today, a group of chimps uh, that live on the savanna in Senegal, and we can look at their behaviors and, and how they differ from forest dwelling chimps to see what we might have done at first. And the story is actually super interesting. They travel in larger groups than forest chimps do. They're more likely to share than forest chimps do. They even fashion these crude spears out of sticks that they bite the ends of, and they used to stab uh, monkeys that they're hunting when they're in the hollows of trees and they can't reach them. And so, and they sleep in caves. They do all sorts of things that I suspect our human ancestors did as well. But of course, they're still chimps. They haven't changed at all 
you know, body type wise, and they haven't changed in, in their intellectual capabilities because this is just something they've been doing for a while. But we were in the no choice condition. And so doing that for millions of years would have led to all sorts of changes. Now, the first change that we can see of any really great importance is in Australopithecus. So by three million years after we left the rainforest, we now basically look like a chimp, except that we walk upright. We, um, Australopithecines uh, can lock their knees, which a chimpanzee can't do, and their, um, their body is stretched out much like ours has, and they're completely bipedal, meaning they walk on two legs. When a chimpanzee tries to walk upright, it, it's in this sort of weird squat position and it kind of hobbles along. But Australopithecines, we know from some footprints that they very fortuitously left in volcanic ash that then solidified, and when we computer model those footprints, we can see by their foot strike that they were walking upright and with a straight knee like we have. So at that point in time, they're, they're barely smarter than a chimp. They've, a chimp brain is about 380 grams and their brain is about 450 grams. So they've gained about 70 grams of brain power um, over that three million years. But something really important has happened and that is their shift to upright walking. We can talk about why that shift might've been if you'd like, but for yeah. our purposes, that led to the next big change that mattered a lot. Yeah, so we, can we quickly touch on that? Like, why do you think, or what do we know? Um, what does the evidence show why we started moving upright and becoming sure. sure. So, the um, first of all, a big change like that in body type usually has many causes. It's not there's not a single one reason why we do it, but there's usually multiple causes. And lots of people have argued that it made us more efficient in game hunting, running for very long distances. So when, you, when you're on two legs, calorically, you can jog for a long way at a cheaper price than a four-legged animal, but you're slower. And so it might well have been that we were, that we persistence hunted, that we ran down big game by just running and running and running. Um, it got away from us every time, but over time we caught up to it because we were, um, we could sustain it longer than the animals could. So that's a possibility. Um, it's also can be more efficient for long distance travel. It helps you look over the grasses and stuff like that so you can see a little bit better. Mind you, we're not terribly tall and sometimes the grass was, so I don't know how much that would have mattered, but it probably helps sometimes. The, um, the key thing I think was going on, and of course there's no evidence for this, it's purely just hypothetical and, and inferring based on what our capabilities were at the time. But if you look at what, we were mentally capable of. Lots of people talk about, well, maybe we walked on two, on two legs so we could carry items with us like food or weapons. But if you look at Australopithecines, there's no evidence whatsoever that they could plan for a future with unfelt needs. And by that, I mean that they could plan for a future that was a little bit different than what they're feeling right now. So if an Australopithecus was hungry, it would have eaten, and then it would have thought, well, I'll never necessarily be hungry again. It would have left the food behind. Now, that seems bizarre, but that's exactly what chimpanzees and monkeys do. When they're hungry, they eat, and when they're full, they literally throw their food away, even if there's not going to be food coming for a while. Even if it's done in a lab where we, you can train them that they're not going to be fed in a while, they can't think, oh, I'm going to be hungry in a few hours. I'll save some of it. Similarly, if we look at the tools, that the, the stone tools that existed, three million years ago, there's no evidence that anyone carried them at any distance at all from where they acquired and made. And so again, there's no evidence that they could think, oh, I might want to reuse this tool that I'm currently fashioning to cut something with. So I don't think Australopithecus started walking upright in order to bring things that it thought it might need to carry them. But I do think that it started walking upright in order to bring things that it felt it needed right now. 
And so imagine that this is you, that you're sort of a chimp-like, australopithecine-like animal five or six million years ago, and you're about to walk across the grass. You know, what's the dominant emotion that you would feel? I think for most of us, that emotion is fear because they're very successful in the trees, but they're, they're anyone's dinner out on the grass. And so if you feel fear, you would probably want in the moment to have something to protect yourself. And so I think that our chimpish ancestors would have been wanting to bring a stick with which they could fend off something or bring a rock with which they could fend off something because they're afraid right now. And that desire to bring a weapon, to have something to protect themselves because they're afraid right now, it wouldn't have necessarily established as early as chimps, but pretty quickly they would have got to the point where this starts to become something that becomes a strategy, a behavioral strategy. You know, we don't see chimps do that, for example, in Senegal today. But over a million or two years, I think they would have developed this idea. And then once you're doing that, well, then you can do it much more effectively if you can walk on two legs and use your two hands for carrying. Yeah, that's interesting. And from there, is that how hunting and the practice of hunting sort of formed? And, and what's the timeline of, you know, when we were scavengers and when did we shift to becoming hunters? Yeah, great question. So at that, so here we are now, we're three or so million years ago. We've got an ancestor who's a tiny bit smarter than, their, than chimpanzees. Um, and the question is now, what are they doing with this capacity to walk upright? Well, it turns out that as a byproduct of bipedalism, that is not a cause of being walking upright, but a consequence of walking upright, our waist tends to stretch out and we gain, we gain a greater ability to spin from side to side because we no longer have this sort of squeeze narrow waist of a chimp. Also, our muscles start to orient with the world laterally rather than vertically, because of course, chimps are going up and down trees all day. But once you're out on the ground and you're bipedal, you interact with the world in a much more side-to-side -side fashion. The consequences of those changes in musculature lead to the development of the single most important invention in military history, and that is the capacity to kill at a distance. So if you watch chimpanzees try to throw, they're not very good at it. They typically use two hands and they typically throw over the top uh, with poor accuracy and not too much speed, despite the fact that they're very strong. But if you watch a uh, human being throw, we're stunningly good at it. We typically step forward with the opposite leg that we're gonna throw with. We start to spin our hips then we start to, and waist, then we start to spin our chest, then our elbow comes through, shoulder across, and at the very end, we snap our wrist. And that motion, from the like let's say i'm throwing right-handed from my step forward with my left foot to the final moment when i snap with my right hand generates an enormous amount of elastic energy the stretching out of your ligaments tendons and muscles and that end of that throw was like the snapping of a rubber band so here we are weaker than a chimpanzee pound for pound but we can throw way better than they can and way more accurately and what we can see in the fossil record is that although australopithecus didn't have all those parts of the puzzle in place, they had most of them. They were much more flexible and all across those dimensions, much more capable of snapping their wrists, moving the shoulder, et cetera, which would have meant that they would have been much more effective throwers than chimpanzees. Now we don't have any behavioral evidence of what they did, but I suspect that in the beginning, it wasn't them hunting so much as them protecting themselves. You know, a leopard or a lion attacks them and they previously would have just all scattered for the trees, which is exactly what chimps do today when they're in the savannah. But once they developed the capacity to throw, it was actually in everybody's interest, rather than scattering, and one of them is sure to die, if they all could throw at once, they could defend themselves. You know, one or two Australopithecines throwing a rock at a lion, it's gonna end up in the belly of a slightly bruised lion. But 20 or 30 Australopithecines simultaneously stoning a lion or a leopard, well, they could protect themselves. And so, 
hunting probably was an outgrowth of the initial effort, which was just to protect themselves. But this is a key change because up till now, all we have are physical changes, but now we need an important psychological change because chimpanzees don't work very well together. They're not capable of in behaving in that kind of coordinated fashion. And so once they developed the capacity to throw, they would have also had to develop a changed psychological proclivity, which is they would have to develop a tendency to cooperate with each other much more readily than their chimpanzees would have. Yeah, that's interesting. So what are some of the traits that developed through that cooperation? Like what are some of the things that we started having to do and what were the shifts in our mentality and mindset towards a more social and cooperative structure and worldview? Sure, well that, that, change, that changed everything. So for the first time in our line, now this is only true for primates, but it, it, um, it's true in other lines already, but it's never been true in our line that the individual's goals and the group goals were perfectly aligned. And so for the first time in our ancestry, now it's the case that you know, fundamentally chimps kind of compete against each other. They're all out against one another, except in rare circumstances when they work together. But for now, for the first time in our ancestry, it, it would actually benefit us all to cooperate more than it benefits us to compete. And once we do that, and once we align group goals and individual goals, all sorts of opportunities emerge because now we can work together much more effectively by cooperating with each other. And what that means is that, is, is that if we start to get smarter, we can learn to cooperate more effectively. For example, we could develop division of labor. We could develop planning so that we could use that division of labor to set up a hunt, for example. Once you can do that, there are emergent properties to groups that don't exist when groups are just collections of individuals who are not very good at cooperating. So for example, if you watch a chimpanzee group hunt monkeys, you can predict the probability that they'll catch a monkey as, in, as a function of each individual person that, or chimp that gets added to the group. If there are five chimps in a group, they're five times more likely than one chimp to catch a monkey. But the, it's just a straight linear combination of how many chimps there are. But if you have a group that can work together and plan and cooperate, then it's no longer a straight linear combination, but rather the group gets exponentially more effective as more group members join it. Because I can say to you, all right, you go around that side, I'll go here, I'll chase it toward you, you do this. You know, we can develop a strategy in division of labor. And what that means is that suddenly we can become much more effective, both in escaping predators, but also in becoming predators ourselves. And once you can do that, you can start to pay the rent on a bigger brain. So prior to Australopithecines, remember for 3 million years, all we gained in brain power was about 70 grams. But now we go from a 450 gram brain of an Australopithecus to just a million, million and a half years later, we're now at a um, some, somewhere around 950 gram brain of a um, Homo erectus. So, you know, Homo erectus has more than doubled the brain size of an Australopithecus. Now the body's bigger, so it's not quite as much of a difference, but nonetheless, a huge increase in brain size. And then in the million or two years since then, we've increased it massively again to about 1350, which is a modern human brain. So this massive increase in brain size in all probability came about by virtue of our social functioning. Once we learn to cooperate with each other, we can now work more effectively as teams and groups, particularly in hunting. And once we can become more effective hunters, we can pay the cost of the development of a bigger brain. Yeah, that's interesting. So it sounds like the relationship between hunting and communication, they're, they're kind of inseparable, like hunting or hunting and successful hunting required successful communication. That, that's right. 
Yeah, that's right. So other animals hunt very well and they do communicate, especially group living animals. They communicate well with each other, um, typically by virtue of just seeing where the other one is and, and standard ways of doing things that they've learned. But we have this incredible communicative ability that we've developed with this large brain that allows us to do something other animals can't really do, which is flexible division of labor and far more importantly, the planning of an attack. So other animals, they're capable of bringing down larger animals than themselves, but only by virtue of kind of swarming them as a team. So like wolves or leopards, lions, um, animals like that. Human beings can bring down way larger animals than we are by effectively, for example, driving animals into traps, using weapons, et cetera. And it's that planning component and that uh, division of labor component, that the, the flexibility aspect of it, which we can see is back as far as Homo erectus. There's good evidence from almost two million years ago that our ancestors could do that. And so that's probably when everything shifted. Yeah, and that obviously would have been due to the fact that our brain size was increasing along with the fact that because we were hunting and accessing these foods that our ancestors prior to that weren't necessarily able to access on a reliable basis. That's exactly right. So to come back to your earlier question, you know, when do we shift from scavengers primarily to hunters primarily? Well, we don't know with certainty um, because the fossil record obviously has lots of missing bits. But what we can see is by the time we're Homo erectus, we have lots of animals where we have large kills and where we can see cut marks on the bones on the upper thigh of the animal from the um, stone tools that Homo erectus used. Now, if you ever come across a, a kill that you're scavenging, let's say from a lion, you never find any meat left on the upper thigh of the animal because once they eat out some of the aspects of the gut, like the stomach and stuff, they almost immediately eat the upper thigh meat because that's where the largest collection of meat is. That's where the larger muscles are on the animal. And so if you come across a scavenged lion kill, there might be meat down you know, in the calf section of the leg, the lower part or around the hooves or on the face of the animal, et cetera. But there's never, almost never anything left on the upper thigh. When you look at kills that, we, that appear to be brought about by Homo erectus, you can see cut marks from their stone tools in the upper thigh, which you wouldn't bother with if, if you were coming across a scavenge kill because there'd be nothing left there to cut. That's pretty good evidence that they brought the animal down themselves and now they're going immediately into the richest part of the animal um, in order to butcher it up uh, and eat it. So we don't know with any certainty how much um, Australopithecus was, um, or in fact, there's very little evidence about what Australopithecus might've been doing scavenging versus hunting. Um, but we certainly, by the time we get to Homo erectus, two million years ago, and well, they evolved two million years ago, but in the record, it's the data are much more like a million and so years ago, we see good evidence that they were probably hunting fast animals like horses uh, throughout Europe and uh, large animals like elephants also throughout Europe because of course they lived there at that time. Interesting. And so as, as our brains grew, obviously the technology that we used became more and more complex. I'd love to know and, and learn a little bit more about the role of fire and how fire played into this whole story and our ability to cook food and how that sure. would have affected our evolution. Yeah. Absolutely, so these things all are intertwined. So as you asked earlier, you know, did getting smarter make us better hunters or did better hunt, being better hunters make us smarter? Well, they, they all um, self-perpetuate each other. So as you become a little bit smarter, you become a little bit better hunter. And then by virtue of being a little bit better hunter, you're allowed to be a little smarter because you can pay the rent on the big brain. You know, our brains only, are you know this, this small organ compared to the rest of our bodies they're 
like I told you about 1350 grams, but they still use 20% of your metabolic energy at all times. And so, um, you know, that's a huge amount of energy for such a, a relatively small organ. The, um, uh, that process is brought about by having to get higher quality foods. So part of the process of getting higher quality foods is being a bit, bit better hunter, which then allows you to grow a bit bigger brain, which in turn makes you a bit better hunter still. And part of that process are really important inventions like fire. So Richard Wrangham in his wonderful book, Catching Fire, proposed that basically the invention of fire has to go back to around the advent of Homo erectus. So if we look at, um, at, our, at primates prior to Homo erectus, so our hominin ancestors, we can see that chimpanzees have this rib cage that kind of sticks outward. We can see that Australopithecus has a rib cage that kind of sticks outward. Even Homo um, habilis does. But by the time you get to Homo erectus, you now start to get a rib cage that looks like ours. It's basically vertical, it's flat. And what that tells you is that by the time you get to Homo erectus, our gut was a lot smaller than it had been. So chimpanzees have a relatively large gut and they need that large gut because they're processing relatively low quality foods. So it takes a lot of digestive processing. We have a relatively small gut. And so what that's telling us is that we're putting higher quality foods in, into our gut that don't take as much energy to process. And in fact, if you look at the gut to brain ratio, chimps have huge gut, small brain. We have small gut, big brain. And what Rangham proposed is that fire was a key to getting us there. Because once you cook foods, you make them a lot more easy to digest. And you can just tell that, you know, using the, the olfactory organs that evolution gave us. Try sniffing, you know, a raw steak. It, it smells, if anything, kind of disgusting usually. But you sniff a cooked steak, and if you're carnivorous like I am, it smells delicious. Or try eating, if you're a vegetarian, try eating a raw potato. It's almost inedible. If you try eating a cooked potato though, that thing is delicious. And so cooking releases calories a lot more readily. It makes the nutrients in them a lot more accessible to us. And so what Rangham argued is that this, there was this co-evolutionary process by which we evolved the capacity to control fire by getting smarter. And then once we could control fire, that allowed us to get a lot smarter still because now we could um, make the foods that we were um, capable of hunting and gathering, we could bring them to a lot higher quality. Interesting. So we're almost outsourcing that digestion and therefore our guts can become smaller and we have more energy to fuel our brains. That's Isn't absolutely that right. So yeah. if you look, for example, at chimpanzees, they spend hours each day chewing their food because, because they can't cook it. They have to just soften it with the jaw muscles in their face. We have these tiny little jaw muscles now. We can't we don't have anywhere near the power of a chimp jaw, and we don't spend eight hours a day chewing our food. We spend, you know, I don't know, an hour and a half, depending on how long you take at your meal. But the foods that we eat by virtue of cooking them become so much softer. And that's one example of how they become easier to digest. Yeah, interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the notch to an L gene and how that's kind of influenced brain growth? Uh, that yeah, absolutely. So the, the what we have is um, we've got this system whereby up until about 3 million years ago, there's no great premium on us getting smarter than chimpanzees. Uh, chimps are very smart, actually, compared to all the other animals on the planet. They have more capabilities than most of them do. And it makes perfect sense, given that they have um, opposable thumbs like we do. In fact, they have more opposable thumbs than we have. And, 
they therefore can manipulate objects and use tools and do the kinds of things that take a fair bit of brain. But once we get to Australopithecus, now we have these social qualities, right? Now that we're cooperating, we have these emergent properties of groups, which give us great advantage if we can find ways to work together better, but they also make life a little bit more difficult because now you have to navigate a group of smarter individuals than you did before. So you too need to be clever so you don't get left behind. And the question is, well, all right, genetically, how did that happen? What happened in our brain that allowed us to suddenly start getting smarter around the point of Australopithecus? And at this point, the evidence is very speculative, well, like it is for most of what I'm saying. But nonetheless, there's some very interesting data that came out a few years ago. A pair of papers in the journal Cell reported on the NOTCH2NL gene and its possible role in human brain expansion. Now, this particular gene emerged in our line about, I, I don't remember, a little over 10 million years ago. and um, and what it was, it's, it was a common duplication error that we see in, that um, evolution often takes advantage of. And so in this particular case, at some point, some animal had um, a duplication of the NOTCH2NL gene, and it just sat, the, the second one, it already had one that was working just fine, and it accidentally created a second one that then got turned off. So now it has a working NOTCH2NL gene and a non-working NOTCH2NL gene. And this is a great mechanism for evolution because it can mess around with the gene without disrupting its original function because it can just work with a non-viable version of the gene, the one that's been turned off. And so it just sat there on our genome for about, well, I can't remember exactly when it first appeared. Let's say 12 million years ago, although I could be off by a few million years. But nonetheless, it sat there till about three or four million years ago doing nothing. And then suddenly three or four million years ago, it switched on. And I'll come back to why it switched on in a second. But for the moment, the key thing is that once it switched on, it did something very interesting. First, it duplicated again, so now there's more of it. And then second, it turned itself back on, and the function appears to be delaying the development of the stem cells into becoming neurons. And so when, when our brain cells, before they become neurons, before they specialize, when they're still stem, stem cells, they can duplicate repeatedly, but they can't do that so well when they're neurons. And so by turning them into, by keeping them as stem cells for longer, our brain growth was massively increased. So what that did is that around the time of Australopithecus, suddenly this gene duplicates itself that's been doing nothing for a very long time and turns itself back on, causing our brain to massively expand by causing that period of development to be elongated when the neurons keep expanding them or keep duplicating themselves. Now, the question would be, well, why did it fortuitously come on you know, exactly three million years ago when we could use it the most, right? When we're starting to work together in groups and we have the real potential to use our smarter brains. Well, the answer is obviously that it didn't. It probably turned on countless thousands or even millions of times over those millions of years. But every time it turned itself on, it, did, it gave its owner no benefit at all. So a really smart chimpanzee or, or even a pre-chimp, you know, because it's older than that, or a really, you know, really smart monkey or a really smart even Australopithecus, before they're learning to cooperate with each other, what benefit does it gain from being smarter than everybody else? You know, it, 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 it can't hunt better, it can't do anything better, it can just think deeper thoughts because it hasn't found a way to work together as a group. And so until it found a way to work together as a group, every time those genes turn themselves on, I suspect if anything, that larger brain was too much cost and not enough benefit. The animal wasn't getting better fed, but it had to spend more calories on a bigger brain. And so it was actually a cost, a detriment to the animal and not a benefit. But once we started 
being able to kill at a distance once we started to cooperate as a group. Now, when that gene shift turned itself on, it was a massive benefit. So here I am, the super smart Australopithecus, and I can say, ooh, let's start cooperating together more effectively. And I can you know, provide good guidance and advice to my fellow Australopithecines. We can go out and kill more animals. I have more offspring, and that gene spreads. Interesting. That's Yeah, that's fascinating. Can you um, share a little bit about more on some of the things that are unique to maybe Homo sapiens or, or maybe just throughout our history on how, what traits we use to cooperate and what are some of the, these cognitive abilities? I know that you mentioned something that was really interesting to me, which is the ability to advertise our thoughts through our, the whites of our eyes and how that's kind of shifted over our evolution. Sure. So that's a, that's a great question. So the, um, if you look at chimpanzees, remember I said that they're fundamentally competitive with one another. They can work together on occasion, but they prefer not to. If given a choice, they try to do things alone. And, um, you know, like achieve tasks alone, hunt alone, etc. But again, they'll work together sometimes. Chimpanzees, um, their eyes are entirely brown. So they're very clever animals. And they can see, they, they can tell what another animal's perspective is. So if you're over there to my left and I'm looking at you and I see you look off to the right, I can tell where you're likely looking from your vantage point. Other animals, monkeys can't really do that, but chimpanzees can. And so they could potentially benefit from knowing where another animal's attention is drawn, but they disguise that information with the brown, with having entirely brown eyes. So they make it very difficult for other members of the group to tell where they're looking. We humans have evolved these whites to our eyes that advertise the direction of our gaze. So something attracts my attention off to the left and I look off to the left, even if my head is aimed to the right, you can immediately see the direction of my gaze. I've advertised it to you with the whites of my eyes. Now I would never do that unless you're gonna help me achieve my goals. If it benefited the group but hurt me, no animal's gonna evolve that proclivity. But if it benefits the group and it benefits me, well then that's something that I'm going to evolve. And then what that tells us, the white store eyes tell us, is that on average, I want you to know the direction of my attention. I want you to know the contents of my thoughts because you're probably gonna help me achieve my goals. When, I, when my attention is grabbed by something off to my left, if it's a predator, you're probably gonna help me protect myself from him. If it's prey, you're probably gonna help me get him and then we're probably gonna share the proceeds. And so we shifted away from our chimp ancestors uh, with in the evolution of the whites of our eyes, um, every once in a while, by the way, you see a chimp or a gorilla with whites of their eyes, but as a rule, they don't have it, whereas humans always have that. And so it's a very clear sign physiologically, you know, our anatomy showing our fundamentally cooperative nature, which of course, there's lots of signs in that psychologically as well. There's wonderful experiments that are done on chimpanzees versus humans, which I'd be happy to talk about if you'd like, showing that we fundamentally tend to cooperate with each other and they fundamentally don't. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Like, what are some traits that are unique to uh, our species, and also just the Homo genus as uh, like showing that social cooperation versus chimps? Sure. So, my my favorite experiment um, is one where what they did is they had uh, either chimpanzees or children do the task, and what they're what you have is a little platform that has food on it and a rope that goes under it, and it comes out in two different ends. And so, the rope that's underneath it, if you pull on it and only one person pulls, you'll pull the rope right through it, and then you can't pull the platform in. But if, if one animal or one person grabs one end and one grabs the other end and you both pull, now you can draw this, this little platform toward yourself and on top of the platform there's food. So obviously both chimps and humans want to cooperate to pull the platform into themselves in order to get the food. Um, you know, it benefits everybody. So it's a high cooperation situation. 
And what they find is that if, if in so doing, when you pull the platform toward yourself, it, what you do is you pull basically two little platforms. So there's two different places where food come towards yourself. So the food can come to both actors. You know, you and I are pulling on the ropes. One platform of food comes to me, one comes to you. Chimps will maintain that cooperation forever. And of course, children will as well. They both pull, in come the treats, they both eat the treats. But if the rope is set up such that when you and I pull, the platform only comes in, only one platform comes in, and then I, the larger chimp, let's say that's me, can dominate it, I'll immediately go over as a chimpanzee and eat all the food. Now, if I was a little kid, I would go over and so would you, and then I would share it out with you. Well, what's the consequence of that? Very quickly, when there's only this one platform of food, if you and I are chimps, you stop cooperating with me, because why should you pull on the rope when I eat all the food? And so immediately the system breaks down and the, neither animal gets fed. With kids, they could go forever. They just keep pulling on the ropes, getting the treats, sharing them out, everyone's happy. And so that fundamentally cooperative nature that we have makes us readily solve problems, even when we're little, and we can't necessarily think through all the implications of our action, our underlying tendency to cooperate makes us much more effective. And you see this as early as four years old. Kids know who's on their team, who helped, who didn't, and they reward people accordingly. Chimps don't do it in the lab, and they don't do it in the wild. If they catch an animal, if they catch a monkey on a hunt, they won't share it with necessarily the other hunters. They'll, they'll randomly share it with whoever's higher in the food chain than they are, who are you know, in the hierarchy and whoever nudges them the most. So these kinds of behaviors, this, this orientation to a corporation is fundamental in our species, and we don't see it uh, in chimpanzees. Now, of course, there's, there's lots of other abilities that go along with that like our, of course, enormous capacity for communication, our ability to plan for a future that we don't currently understand, et cetera. And these things all come together and work toward the same kind of cooperative problem solving. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's kind of the advent of the, um, the creation of the idea of tribalism in, in human culture. And that shapes a lot of how we are today and how we've evolved is like, is there much research to suggest like how we as humans act intertribally? Like, is there still violence between different tribes that we see in our history or more recent history as Homo sapiens, even though we are cooperative or is it like, what's that story? Yeah, yeah that's a, it's a great question. It's a little bit of a depressing one if you're a human, but it's a great one nonetheless. And, and that is that, um, you know, so it was our cooperation and our ability to kill at a distance that made us so effective. And so by the time we get to Homo erectus, we're now back at the top of the food chain. Remember, we were there, these chimpish ancestors in the top of the trees. Now we have a long multi-million year nosedive. And now, um, four million years or so later, we're starting to work our way back toward the top, which we probably achieved uh, about a million years ago. The, um, and what that means is that, yes, an individual human out on his own could easily be eaten by a lion or a leopard, or a killed by a mammoth, whatever. But groups of humans were now the apex predator because we could cooperate, we, could, um, we had division of labor as Homo erectus, and those two facts, and, and we have evidence that we could even plan for the future. And I'm happy to talk about that evidence if you'd like. But so now we've got cooperation, planning, and um, division of labor. And what that means is that no other animal on this planet can attack us when we're in a group and survive that attack. You know, we're just the most effective um, predator out there. But it also means that there's only one other predator that's potentially a threat to us. And that's other groups of Homo erectus, because they too have the ability to plan, cooperate, and um, have division of labor. And so by the time we get to them, 
our cooperative tendencies still would have been very oriented toward members of our own group, but they no longer would have been oriented toward members of other groups because members of other groups might be an opportunity. They might get together peacefully and share things and, and maybe men or women could switch groups and thereby reduce inbreeding, but they also might be a threat. They might want to take what our group has by force. And so what we see is an orientation that's certainly the case in Homo sapiens and probably was the case in Homo erectus as well, although we don't know, which is we're fundamentally automatically cooperative with members of our own group and we're very ambivalent about members of other groups, sometimes cooperate, sometimes compete. And so if the best evidence for this is again from Richard Wrangham. If you look at the rates of within group violence among physical violence among humans, you see the chimpanzees are about 500 times as violent as human hunter-gatherers. And the reason we compare them to hunter-gatherers is they have no police force, so people can just do whatever they want, whatever they can get away with. Whereas, you know, modern human, I might be tempted to punch somebody, but I don't wanna get in trouble, so I don't. And chimps don't have that concern, so we want the comparison to be with humans who don't have that concern. And so what you see is chimpanzees are two to 500 times as violent within the group as humans are, but the rate of with between group violence is literally one-to-one -one between humans and chimps. So we become way kinder to members of our own group than chimpanzees, but we're no kinder to members of other groups at all. We're still just as tribal as they are. And you've probably seen these nature shows, Jane Goodall and such, where they show them off um, trying to kill members of other groups. And of course, that's exactly what humans do as well. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting how that aspect hasn't necessarily changed. And It's kind of sad, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, can you, yeah, can you touch on some of the evidence that we see of when humans started to being able to plan for the future and, and what sure, evidence? Sure, have? Yeah. So remember, I told you, if we look back at the earliest stone tools, they're called Oldowan tools. And although there's a hint of an even older style of tool, but the good evidence is for Oldowan tools. And they're um, two, three million years ago. And they... Um, there's no evidence of any of them being carried any great distance from where they were acquired and then a little bit of chipping to sharpen them. In contrast, if you look at the tools that Homo erectus developed, they're called Acheulean tools. They're much nicer looking tools that are bifacial and symmetrical than these early barely carved up rocks um, of, prior, of prior ancestors. And these Acheulean tools now have often been found a great distance from where they're acquired and made, many kilometers away. So we know that whoever made the tool is thinking, boy, you know, this is going to be of use to me again in the future. I will um, bring this along. And what that means is an ability to plan for a future where you have unfelt needs, because someday I'll kill another animal and I'll want to have this tool. Whereas prior to that, they, they couldn't have that cognition. They couldn't think someday I'll have I'll kill another animal and then I'll want this tool. So that's piece of evidence one. Piece of evidence two is there even seems to be division of labor in the way they made that tool. So for example, there's a 1.2 million year old site in India where we can see um, the making of these tools separated spatially around the site. There's a one spot where they were first initially knocking the flakes loose. There's another spot where they're doing the initial carving and then there's a final spot where they're doing the sharpening. So pretty good evidence that one member of the group is doing the initial breaking the rocks loose because that's a big hard job that takes a lot of muscle and then probably handing it off to somebody else because why else would you do it spatially differentiated? You know, why knock a rock loose, work on it somewhere else, work on it somewhere else if you're doing it your own? You wouldn't, you just sit down and work on it right there. But if you're getting help with it, then you'd likely give it off to somebody else who will go work at a slight distance from you. Um, Jake, I'm really sorry. I have to let the dog out for a second. Yeah, so if, okay. if you give me one moment, I, I apologize. Sure, that's all good. Do that again in a minute. Um, but anyway, all good.
Okay, so, uh, so where are we now? Uh, so yeah, could you maybe touch on more recent uh, human evolutionary history and talk about yeah, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals and Denisovans and that relationship and how that story has kind of unfolded over the past few hundred thousand years. Sure. So, um, so once you get to uh, Homo erectus, now you know the first signs of them are the first evidence we have is in South Africa of Homo erectus, and that's very that that paper just came out this year, and and that's now two million years ago, and so at that point in time, Homo erectus is actually coexisting with. Um, other, other hominin ancestors like Australopithecines, and but eventually those other ancestors disappear, and Homo erectus also starts radiating, radiating out from Africa at that point. So they start to colonize the lower half of Europe, and they start to colonize the lower half of Asia. So and we see their tools as a consequence all over um, Europe and Asia. In fact, the Shulian tools are named after the first site they were found in France, and so we um, we know that they were capable of adapting to new environments, and we know that they were um, capable of using uh, the same stone tools that they had used effectively in Africa um, there as well. And what's interesting then is that they, um, they're now evolving, Homo erectus, you know, our closest ancestors, now evolving outside Africa as well as evolving inside Africa. And so if we then track forward for the next million or so years, we get to the point where now Outside of Africa, they've evolved into a variety of different Homo species, uh, the Denisovans, which we only know from a few small bones in Russia, and, and the DNA, thankfully, that we were able to extract. Um, the Neanderthals, which we know were across um, Europe and Asia. And then, um, so that's, that's Homo erectus evolving outside Africa. The Homo erectus that evolved inside Africa becomes us, Homo sapiens. So now, around 100,000 years ago or a little less, we start to leave Africa. And we're leaving in earnest by around 80,000 years ago. So we now see all sorts of fossilized evidence of Homo sapiens, you know, basically walking out through um, the Middle East and then fanning out uh, both to Asia, taking a right turn and going to Asia and taking a left turn and going um, to Europe. And then the ones who went to Asia, some of them went, uh, took a right turn again and went down to Australia, Micronesia, et cetera. And so as is human nature, when we left Africa and encountered these cousins of ours, right? So they're, they're, they've evolved down from Homo erectus just like we have. They don't look quite like us. They don't have quite the same capabilities because they've evolved in a colder climate. Um, we start to interbreed with them. And so we can see evidence that Europeans and Asians have Neanderthal um, DNA in them. And we also see evidence that some Asians, when they encountered um, Denisovans interbred with them as well, and Neanderthals did also. So there was all sorts of mixing. Remember, they're all cousins. They're not that different from one another. And so they're now some subpopulations of Homo sapiens also have Denisovan DNA in them as well. And undoubtedly, we're going to discover other ancient um, DNA in us from non Homo sapien species. Those are just the ones we've got so far. Yeah, that's such a fascinating piece of the story. Yeah, Why? Really cool. Yeah, do we have much evidence as to why, like what drove this migration out of Africa with Homo erectus? Like, do we know like what pushed that move? Was it just exploration? Was it food? Kind of, do you know why? Yeah, we, we never know for sure, but I always think it's two things. It's opportunity and threat. And so if the group, if, if the group that lives to the south of me is really nasty and they're a larger, more effective group than I am, than my group is, we're gonna move north. 
so we can get away from them. Even if we're in a really lovely spot that has great weather and great food, the risk of being near this nasty group is too high. So threat has always been an important force in human expansion. It's pushed us into different climates. But opportunity is also an important force in human expansion because we may be living in an area where the game then leave, where the water dries out or whatever. And the environment in those days is much bouncier than it is uh, in a post-agricultural world. You know, we, the, the data suggests we, have all, we learned how to do agriculture around the time that we could effectively do it, when summer and winter became much more reliably um, uh, warm and cold, respectively, when the seasons weren't so bouncy. And so those kinds of threats and opportunities would have driven us to always you know, move along. And someone who happened to be moving along happened to be up in Egypt in those areas of Africa where they could then abut the Middle East and walk out into Asia. And so I suspect that that expansion was running away from nasty people and also food and game of, game of left, its waters run out, let's go see what we can find in that direction. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Cool, man. Well, yeah, I'll start to wrap it up, but is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we finish the recording? No, I mean, the, it's, it's totally up to you. I, I think that you've done a great job of leading us through the basic parameters of the story. So I'm happy to add anything you'd like, but I, don't, I can't think of anything missing. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time and, and for, sh for sharing with us today. Totally my pleasure, Jake. It's been nice talking to you. Such a good conversation. So grateful for having Bill on the show and so grateful for him sharing his time. So all the links to connect with him are going to be in the show notes. I learned so, so much from this conversation and I know that you guys probably did as well. So what I want you to do is if you got value out of this episode, then please take a screenshot and share it on Instagram or whatever social media platform that you use and tag me and let me know your thoughts. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And also, if you want to connect with me, then the links to do so are also in the show notes. You can follow me on Instagram and get the lowdown on what I'm up to or have been up to recently. And again, thank you. I really appreciate your listening. And I will catch you on the next episode of Move Wild Podcast coming out on Friday.